Happy holidays, everyone. This is Connie Morgan with the Free Black Thought Podcast coming at you with some bonus content. This is a special edition of the FBT Podcast graciously presented to you by Yaya Jata Fanusi. This is some original commentary on the classic Spike Lee film, Do the Right Thing, that Yaya had originally posted on YouTube with some video footage there as well. But he's letting us share it with you via this podcast. And we think it'll spark maybe some good conversations as you're gathering with your family this holiday season. This film still resonates with people today for a lot of reasons. The movie tackles topics such as gentrification, racism, police brutality, baby, daddy, mama, drama, all that kind of good stuff or bad stuff. Despite these timeless struggles, in Yaya's opinion, many viewers never understood the deeper message of the film. This being that when the desire for African-American inclusion relies on emotionalism to get representation in the mainstream while never actually resolving the real problems of Black economic dependency and family instability, the end result is turmoil. So this is an episode that stars Yaya Fanusi, not myself. You'll not hear my voice throughout this episode, of which some of you are probably very grateful for. The nice thing is Yaya has an excellent radio voice. I think you're going to love this episode and you're going to really enjoy this assessment of do the right thing and if you're interested in what else yaya has got going on you can look in the show notes for links to stuff he's written for the journal and some of his other projects we hope you enjoy and happy holidays It seems like it's mainstream to be crazy today. Hear me out. I recently watched the favorite movie of my teenage years, of some 30 plus years ago. Spike Lee's Do the Right Thing from 1989. It was groundbreaking. Do the Right Thing is a classic piece of filmmaking where you see Spike Lee's breakthrough style, the dexterity in his cinematography, his ability to create vibrant characters that pop through real-world dialogue that sounds like it was just lifted off a Bed-Stuy street corner, casting of individuals set in the background who steal scenes with minimal lines, just watch any scene with Robin Harris, and the music. Fight the Power was the public enemy anthem that summed up the moment when the racial tensions of the 1980s began to mix with the rising assertions of black militancy, which were revisiting and repackaging the catalog of black power sensibilities brewed in the 60s. This was the first hip-hop film that wasn't about hip-hop. It wasn't like Wild Style, Crush Groove, or Beat Street from the early 1980s. It was the evolving hip-hop culture as film itself. I was 14 years old when I saw Do the Right Thing in the movie theater. It captivated me from its opening scene to its closing credits. Immediately it displaced the Raiders of the Lost Ark as my favorite film. I was no longer a kid after this movie. It was not an escapist adventure, but a spotlight on the social tensions between race, ethnicity, culture, politics, and power, artfully told. Issues from racism to police brutality, gentrification. A film for its era and one that interestingly speaks to today. But not in the way that most of you may think. 
On a superficial level, some would say that Do the Right Thing as a commentary on race in America stands the test of time. I mean, it climaxes in the death of an unarmed black man killed by police, sparking a riot that destroys a white business in the black community. But that parallel is superficial. If you take a closer look at two key characters in the film and view it these 30 some odd years later, it speaks to a phenomenon that is something new. What I would describe as, now everyone is bugging out. Out of all the characters, the one known as bugging out conveyed a fresh new significance in my recent rewatch. Giancarlo Esposito has gone on to play some many, many great roles, but this one will always be the most significant. It's not just about what bugging out does or says, but what his placement in the film seems to symbolize. One way to look at it is how bugging out plays into the plot. He epitomizes a yearning for black representation and inclusion in an environment where black economic productivity is mostly absent. Recurring throughout the film are black men who are unproductive or irresponsible or struggling with their productivity and responsibilities. The mayor is an alcoholic with no job. He admits he was broken and beaten down by his lack of ability to provide for his young family years ago. That's all we know about him as he tries to entice the affections of mother sister, a self-sufficient brownstone landlord who hates him as much as she hates her tenant and her ex-husband. That's an interesting dynamic there. And at one point, the main character, Mookie, tells a group of young teenagers to get a job as he delivers pizzas. Flourishing economic life is seen in two groups. One, Sal's Pizzeria, owned and operated for 25 years by an Italian-American family. And then there's the Korean-owned grocery. It's been there barely a year. That establishment is also family-run. You see the husband, wife, and even toddler son in the background near the store. Mookie is the employee of Sal, earning $250 a week with a baby's mama and a son he barely sees. But bugging out has no job, as far as we can tell, but he does wear $100 Jordans. A bargain today, but a fortune in 1989. It's bugging out, not Mookie, who sparks the main conflict in the film. At one point, as he begins to chomp down on one of Sal's famous pizza slices, he's struck by the lack of black inclusion on Sal's wall of fame. We see exactly what bugging out is thinking. In the middle of Black Bedstuy, he's a patron of the pizzeria, surrounded by these images that don't look like him. The photos, I guess, don't tell his story. And when he confronts Sal about why he don't got no brothers up on the wall, Sal's answer is simple. It's his store, and he puts up the pictures he wants to see. They represent his Italian-American story, Italian-American success. Now, Lee paints this conflict with the complexity it deserves. Sal's Pizzeria is part and parcel of black life in Bedford-Stuyvesant. But it and Sal's family ain't perfect. You have a father and two sons. The oldest son is clearly ignorant and racist. He even mutters the N-word in front of Mookie. And then there's the younger son, who's not tainted by racism. The father is an old-school Italian who worked his way up and built the shop with his bare hands. 
Sal's the authority figure that mostly keeps the brothers from clashing too hard. He seems to have respect for the bed black community with all its flawed characteristics, from the alcoholic Demare and the mentally challenged Smiley. But this apparent respect is nullified later when he utters the unthinkable racial epithet that lits the fire of violence at the film's end. But before we evaluate Buggin' Out's relevance to today, let's unpack his argument in the film. Buggin' Out felt there should be some black representation on the wall of fame because, well, black people were Sal's customers, not Italian-Americans. But how would this play out if Sal's restaurant were a Mexican place with pictures of Latino celebrities or a Chinese restaurant? Should they also put African-Americans on the wall? It's not really important whether that logic actually holds up. What's important is that Buggin' Out believes the logic vehemently and tries to force his opinion on everyone else in the neighborhood. And this is where we see why Buggin' Out is called Buggin' Out, which is slang for acting crazy, having a loose grip on reality. Sal kicks out Buggin' Out for his demands, and then Buggin' Out tries to start a boycott of the pizzeria. A boycott that almost nobody wants to take part in. Not Mookie, not the teenagers hanging out, not Mookie's sister, who says point blank about his boycott idea, what is that gonna do? And then when Buggin' Out asks if she's not down with a cause for black people, she says, yeah, she's down for a positive change in the community. In effect, telling him to use his energy to do something that will actually help the lives of people in the neighborhood, rather than this superficial change of pictures on the wall that he's so wrapped up about. Note here that Buckin' Out's plea is not for black empowerment. He's not looking to create his own establishment that would reflect his story in the world. He's simply asking Sal to include him in Sal's economic and cultural establishment. Buggin' Out is not an economic producer. He's a consumer of pizza and Jordans. The economic producers in the film are Sal, the Korean grocers, Mother Sister, who owns property, and on a lower level, Mookie, who is Sal's employee. But Buggin' Out wants a change. Not a change where he is established like these other figures, but a change where others give him representation. But we have a picture here of bugging out as someone whose thinking is not accepted as the mainstream at the time, at least not to most rank and file community members. The boycott is seen as poorly conceived and perhaps frivolous. They see bugging out as someone who is bugging out. Except for eventually one person, the enigmatic Radio Rahim, played elegantly by Bill Nunn. Do the Right Thing as a film is nothing without Radio Rahim. He's a character we have to break down. He must represent something. Spike is too good an artist to mold such a character without some deeper significance to the rest of the story. So let's look at Radio Rahim. His main action throughout the movie is strolling through the neighborhood, loudly bumping P.E.'s Fight the Power. So does he symbolize rebellion? Black militancy? Not necessarily. Think about the scene where he describes his new knuckle rings. On the right hand, it says love. The left says hate. And he explains the story of the fight between love and hate. How hate strikes out against love, but love could win. How there's a choice. 
He can love you or hate you. Radio Rahim is a man of few words. Interestingly, Rahim is a Quranic Arabic word for mercifully redeeming, derived from a word that also means womb. So he's a merciful man, but one who can have two emotions, love or hate. In this film, it seems like he's black emotion. The symbolism of emotion is clear because of his fascination with one thing, his music, his radio. Music's purpose is emotional. So as Radio Rahim walks through Bed-Stuy, him blasting his boombox is his emotional expression. He outblasts the Puerto Rican's Latin music. They can see the power of his music. It's a victory for his self-worth. Radio Rahim, as silent as he is, is the personification of black emotion, which can be driven to either love or hate. So Sal doesn't appreciate Radio Rahim's emotional expression. Sal doesn't want to be outblasted in his establishment and forces Radio Rahim to turn off his public enemy emotional expression before serving him two slices of pizza. That doesn't sit well with Rahim. And there's something I only caught on my most recent watching when I actually had the subtitles. When Sal is yelling at Radio Rahim to turn off the public enemy music, he calls him Mr. Radio Rahim. A sign again that Sal has a modicum of respect for Radio Rahim. So bugging out doesn't get the mainstream black folks to support his boycott. But Radio Rahim does decide to join him. To get the support, bugging out had to appeal to the emotion, the black emotion. And once bugging out had black emotionalism on his side, well, the emotion of the movie goes into overdrive and brings the film's well-crafted climax. In a nutshell, the desire for superficial diversity, bugging out, and easily swayed black emotionalism, Radio Rahim, come into Sal's establishment with righteous indignation. And I should add that the mentally challenged Smiley also follows them, perhaps showing that their cause, or at the very least, their approach and strategy was not an intelligent one. What ensues is the violent conflict. They bust in, playing public enemy, demanding black people on the wall. Sal tells him to turn off that, quote, jungle music. Insults are exchanged. Sal calls Buggin' Out and Radio Rahim niggers and takes a bat to Radio Rahim's beloved boombox. Destroying his music was like Sal killing Radio Rahim's self-worth. From there, Radio Rahim had to fight back. He only had hate for Sal and winds up lunging at him at the neck to kill him. In symbolic terms, it may have been self-defense because Radio Rahim was his music his emotional expression that did not fit into Sal's world. What followed was a set of circumstances that fell like dominoes, resonating with the racial strife of the 1980s in New York, a violent altercation and a police response that ended Radio Rahim's life in a chokehold. Rahim is dead and bugging out whose faux righteousness started it all is carried away by the police. The riot follows with the people of the neighborhood trashing the pizzeria after Mookie hurls a trash can through the window. 
Now, I remember back when the film first came out, a lot of debate centered on why did Mookie throw the trash can? Sal didn't kill Radio Rahim, the police did. But Mookie's act of defiance was not just against Radio Rahim's death, but all that was messed up about the situation. The state of black life in Bedsty, Sal owning an establishment in the neighborhood where there was little African-American ownership. And in this situation where everyone has the potential for love or hate, when the identity of emotionalism is snuffed out when pitted against other people's economic self-reliance and the institutions of law and order which may look down upon those being police, it simply made sense to burn it all down. But this still was a discussion point in 1989 because while the emotions leading to the riot were well understood by moviegoers, it wasn't seen as the most intelligent action to take. And that's why the mentally challenged Smiley saw it as victorious to place two black people on Sal's wall of fame at the end, Martin and Malcolm. Perhaps Spike was saying, this is a happy result for those who don't have all their faculties. And this brings us to today. Watching Do the Right Thing a generation later, it has a peculiar resonance. It's not just that the themes of police brutality, lack of diversity, and poor African-American performance are still issues. It's how the caricature of bugging out would likely be framed today. It seems that bugging out's mentality is now mainstream. The I want to see people who look like me on the wall idea has taken a life of its own and has become policy. Bugging Out's mode of seeking the diversity aesthetic was mostly about seeing color represented and acknowledged by the mainstream establishment, not about the improvement in the actual performance, stability, and prosperity of African-American life. It was not about African-Americans having the same inputs of family, social, and economic prowess that enable success. It was about outputs outputs over inputs. Now, regarding a healthy family as input, I should have mentioned this. There's not one representation of stable, healthy African-American families in the movie. The only intact nuclear family units we see are the economically productive ones, Sal and his sons, although it's unclear if Sal is married, divorced, or widowed, and briefly the Korean grocers. Sure, Mookie and Jade are very close as siblings, but the intergenerational family with them is lacking. It's not seen. And Mookie, according to Tina, is failing at fatherhood. Do the Right Thing was snubbed at the Oscars in 1990. It only got two Paltry nominations for Best Supporting Actor and Best Original Screenplay, winning neither. Emblematic of the time, the winner of Best Picture was Driving Miss Daisy featuring the relationship between a wealthy white woman and her African-American male chauffeur, played by Morgan Freeman. I have to admit, to this day I've never seen Driving Miss Daisy. The Do the Right Thing teenager in me had no interest in that whatsoever. Hollywood and the Academy clearly were not ready for Do the Right Thing in the 90s. That's why the film was groundbreaking. But here's how things have shifted. In 2020, 
the Oscars announced a new set of diversity quotas. They call them representation and inclusion standards. To be eligible to receive an Oscar in the Best Picture category, films must have diversity representation, including specific numbers or percentages in certain on and off screen roles. You could say that Hollywood is now taking seriously the demand to make sure that there are pictures with brothers on the wall. Some people will celebrate this. I mean, doesn't it mean more work for black actors, screenwriters, and directors? More African-American driven stories? More inclusion? Well, let's play out that logic as if we went back to do the right thing and redid the story. Let's say it played out differently. Let's say that after bugging out demanded black representation on the wall, Sal acquiesced. Let's say Sal put up photos of Martin Luther King, Michael Jackson, and Jesse Jackson on the wall. How would that aesthetic have changed the lives of the folks of Bed-Stuy? And let's say bugging out went beyond that. Let's say he went deeper and demanded that Sal hire more black folks to work in his restaurant and then went to the Korean grocery and demanded that they hire some African-Americans. This would be a demand for output. Recently, I heard an interesting analogy from the author Charles Love talking about this type of issue. He sort of summed it up as guacamole versus avocados. He said that you can focus on the fact that restaurants need to have guacamole. You could say stores need to sell guacamole dip in greater numbers because guacamole is a big thing. But in your push for guacamole, if you never do anything about the supply of avocados, then what are you really going to get? How successful will you be? The way you get guacamole in the world is only by growing the avocados. Bugging out was all about seeking certain outcomes. But how to get the outcomes he wanted? In the short term, sure, he could demand Sal give it to him. But in the long term, it would have been more effective for there to be more restaurateurs who quite organically would express the representation he was seeking if they had his background. But that doesn't come with a magic wand or an indignant demand. You need people excelling in the same things that Sal and the Korean grocer excelled at. Having that family life stability, educational performance, the do-it-yourself will, the making of smart economic decisions. That's how Sal got his pizzeria family business and had it flourish for two decades. That's how the Korean immigrants purchased a boarded up building and built a fruit and vegetable store. Those were their inputs. Do the right thing exemplifies the drama that occurs when those without the proper inputs clash with those who have the inputs and outputs, especially when those lacking get their raw emotions of love and hate stoked by those who want superficial representation. Bugging out was a foolish way of thinking and acting that eventually led to the death of independent African-American self-expression and destroyed a flawed but functioning establishment, one that had fed the entire community. At the end, Bugging Out's moves left everyone more divided, even though he did get some black faces on the wall at the end, 
after the establishment had burned to the ground. Maybe Sal's Pizzeria was a representation of America and its history, enabled by Black support, Black life, Black work, reaching a point where Mookie almost began to take on a bigger role in its running. But I pray America's future is different. Bugging Out was not about empowering the inputs to get the output he wanted. Hollywood has embraced the Bugging Out output approach. Diversity and inclusion quotas don't empower. They seek representation, but they represent outputs. And it's sad that Hollywood didn't learn the real lesson of do the right thing. Demanding diversity representation is begging someone to change your situation for you. And it doesn't end well when you make that your racial strategy, even though it resonates with your emotions. Violent conflict is inevitable because you can't demand equality of output without taking what others work for. It totally undermines the principle of people getting what they work for. If there's going to be a quota for representation, it means diversity will be automatic, even if undeserved. We could argue that maybe Do the Right Thing was the best picture of 1989. In hindsight, it certainly seems more relevant and groundbreaking than Driving Miss Daisy. But maybe that's a good point to consider. Does it really matter now that the Academy didn't acknowledge Spike Lee's 1989 masterpiece when it stands on its own as a great film? Perhaps it was the Academy's lack of diversity at the time, or perhaps it's traditionalism that kept it from giving the movie its just dessert. But honestly, if I were a director, I'd feel better being snubbed by the Academy for a movie that a generation later people consider a masterpiece than receiving an Oscar nowadays for a movie that gets consideration because it checked the required diversity boxes. Hollywood has changed. It has progressed. But unfortunately, that doesn't mean it's doing the right thing. Hey y'all, hope you enjoyed that bonus episode graciously shared with us by Yaya Jata Fanusi. He's one of our favorites here at FBT. He's written for The Journal and he produces a thriller spy podcast. So if you like his voice, you think he's smart, feel free to check out the Jabari Lincoln Files, which is available wherever you get your podcast. And if you've got extra money lying around for some reason, you haven't blown it all on Christmas gifts, food, travel, something like that, feel free to sign up for a paid subscription to our Substack, The Journal of Free Black Thought. That's where you can support both The Journal, obviously, and also the podcast that you're listening to right now. We'd greatly appreciate it. And hey, a paid subscription to our Substack would be a great a great gift as well. So you might want to consider that. Perhaps you have a family member or friend in your life who might enjoy the content that we're putting out. Again, we greatly appreciate your support. We look forward to kicking it with you again in the new year. The first Wednesday of the year is when season two of the Free Black Thought podcast will launch. So happy holidays, everybody, and we'll see you in the new year.